In this series, we've shown how the largest categories of life obviously include the earliest forms, but that lesser categories didn't originate altogether at the same time. Each daughter group is evident in the fossil record more recently than their immediate parent category, which of course implies that they are parents in a more literal sense, that they are in fact ancestral. Daughter clades are not just similar to their ancestral group, they remain a subset of them. Our review of these clades in sequence also shows a consistent correlation between phylogeny and paleontology, further confirmed with embryology as well as genetics, and thus serves as a virtual demonstration of evolution. Consequently, our review of taxonomy also reviews our geologic history, and we've come to a very important moment therein. The previous 19 episodes of the series have brought us to the very end of the Permian period, roughly 252 million years ago, give or take. Although the animals and plants of this world looked very different than the ones we know now, the climate was about the same as what you and I grew up in, until a cataclysmic volcanic eruption began in what is now eastern Russia. This was an extremely rare type of eruption called a flood basalt, where hundreds or thousands of square miles or more can be covered in a vast flood of lava. Successive layers of these floods cover each other, creating a stairway effect called traps, based on the Swedish word for stairs. Eruptions like this evidently occurred maybe a dozen times since then and are often associated with mass extinctions, but none have ever happened in human history. We've never seen anything on this scale. And this one, the Siberian Traps, was the biggest and therefore the worst eruption ever in the geologic history of the world. It wasn't just a volcano either, but rather a network of them from a common source, a 20-mile-wide crack in the Earth's crust. And this prompted a series of repeated waves of volcanic networks to continue pluming in constant succession for well more than a hundred thousand years, with each eruption being more massive than anything in human experience, such that an area the size of Australia or the United States was eventually completely covered in lava up to a mile deep. Had it been divided continents like we have today, then the damage wouldn't have been so extensive, but this was back when all the continents were combined into a single supercontinent called Pangaea, and this only provided more fuel for the chain reaction. This worst-ever eruption also prompted the worst-ever extinction, not from the mile-thick layers of lava, but from the tons and tons of carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide being pumped into the atmosphere. The sulfur dioxide reflects sunlight, causing an extreme chilling effect called a volcanic winter, which is significantly colder and lasts much longer than the normal season. Carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, and so the more of it there is in their atmosphere, the warmer we are. And the way these gases are dispersed globally means that temperate regions could occasionally get colder than Arctic areas. We have the same situation going on right now due to industrial reasons. I recently flew from Iceland to Texas and it was substantially colder here than it was there. And this combination of atmospheric gases initially caused climate chaos with decades of intense episodic pulses of oscillating temperature extremes. It also changed weather systems such that normally dry deserts flash flooded and normally lush areas dried out. And this was already enough to kill off many plant and animal species, but this first phase of extinction due to climate chaos occurred during a period of global warming, where the average temperature rose 4 to 5 degrees centigrade above normal. And that doesn't sound like much. And the way temperatures vary day to day in any given location, it wouldn't be much. But we're not talking about any one location. We're talking about the average annual temperature of the entire planet. That's all areas, both hemispheres, in summer and winter, measured over the course of a whole year. At that scale, any change of even a single degree causes a noticeable difference.
To put that in perspective, where you are now may be a few degrees warmer or colder than yesterday or the same day last year, and it doesn't make much difference. But the last ice age was a global average temperature of only four or five degrees colder than it is now. That was enough for most of North America to be buried in glaciers with the sea level 120 meters lower than it is today. So degrees of annual global average are a much bigger deal than your day-to-day -day local weather. Colder water can retain more gaseous molecules than warmer water. So the warmer the water is, the less oxygen it has. At the end of the Permian, there were primitive sharks and other fish that were as big as whales, and they literally drowned because they needed to get a lot more oxygen through their gills than the warmer water had left in it. Oxygen normally dissolves into surf and is dispersed by the currents at different depths according to the temperature. But when there is no significant difference between the Arctic and the tropics, there's insufficient disparity to drive oceanic currents. And once that stops, the water stagnates. And where that happens, all oxygen is lost. Geologists found pyrite in late Permian seabeds. Pyrite, also known as fool's gold, can only form in water where there is no oxygen. So some areas of the ocean were completely dead, or worse, because there are bacteria that only live in oxygen-depleted water, and where some bacteria produce oxygen as a waste product, these anaerobic bacteria produce hydrogen sulfide. There are stagnant bodies of water like this today that are toxic below a certain depth, where the water becomes pink and poisonous. Imagine a whole sea like that. Hydrogen sulfide can also bubble out of the water, causing clouds of toxic gas at the water's edge. And that leads to the third and final stage of this most cataclysmic of all mass extinctions. The release of oceanic methane displacing oxygen in the air. Right now, there is an estimated 30 trillion tons of methane hydrate frozen all over the ocean floor. And it is very sensitive to changing temperatures. Some areas of warm water have streams of methane bubbling up already, but if our oceans warm by another few degrees, all of that could be released into the atmosphere such that vast areas would be choked with air that is flammable, but not breathable. Methane is also a greenhouse gas 25 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So once the oceans warmed by 5 degrees, they boiled up all that methane hydrate, which raised global temperatures by another 5 degrees, or 10 degrees overall. So Imagine Arizona at 60 degrees Celsius, which is 140 Fahrenheit. So not only are all the low-lying areas death traps, but high-altitude or high-latitude temperate forests, which never get above 80 degrees Fahrenheit, would suddenly be more than 100. And Arctic regions that should never be above freezing would melt, raising the level of the mostly already dead and still deadly oceans by hundreds of feet. Imagine what our coastlines would look like. And this volcanic travesty is known as the Great Dying because 70% of all terrestrial animal and plant species and more than 90% of marine species went extinct over a period of 100,000 years or so. This is indicated by geologic layers showing a massive increase of evident temperature correlated with a loss of oxygen, leaving a world that is so barren that very few fossils have been found in that layer of strata now known as the dead zone. It was a rate of extinction that has not been matched until now. There have been at least a half dozen significant mass extinctions in Earth's history. We're experiencing, actually causing one right now.
by overhunting, overfishing, stripping away natural habitats and replacing them with heat islands of asphalt and concrete, in addition to pesticides and industrial pollutants which are duplicating many of these effects, but at a much faster pace in only a couple hundred years instead of tens of thousands. The Anthropocene is an extinction event where one species became smart enough to change our environment but not smart enough to know how to do it right or stop doing it wrong or even admit that we're doing it at all so we can keep on doing it and not feel responsible for anything further in the future than the next fiscal quarter. Fossilization requires a very particular set of conditions so you usually need quite a few animals alive at one time to find even one of them as a fossil. And once fossils begin to appear again after the Permian extinction, once the eruption stopped and global chemistry and temperatures eventually settled back to their usual balance and life could begin to thrive again, by then there were no more Eurypterids, Orthocones, or Trilobites. Most of the major taxonomic groups were wiped out entirely. The remainder are represented by just a few of the same species that already existed before, survivors of the world's worst cataclysm. Among them are a couple epicynodonts, including galeosaurs and thernaxodonts. These intermediates between mammals and reptiles led to eucynodonts, the new cynodonts for a new age. The Permian was the last period of the Paleozoic era. Now we're in the Triassic, the first period of the Mesozoic era, popularly known as the Age of the Dinosaurs, though the first of them haven't quite appeared yet. Some isolated areas were spared the harshest conditions of the Permian extinction, perhaps because of geography. When it was all over, the few places that were still lush were no more than oases in a vast barren desert where there was not even soil anymore. So it took another 100,000 years or so for the oceans to reoxygenate and for life to even begin to reestablish itself across the wasteland. Our ancestors apparently survived where other therapsids didn't because they were smaller and didn't need as much food, and they were social animals helping each other out, and they had a tendency to live in burrows, becoming omnivorous and getting water underground from tubers and other such things. Good strategies for such a hot and hostile climate. As we've already seen, the definitive features of each daughter group become more and more specific. Eucynodonts are primarily identified by how the jaw moves in a more mammal-like fashion to gnaw and chew more efficiently, which is good when food is scarce, and also a general reduction in the number of bones that make up the jaw and its hinge. Bones that aren't in our jaws anymore at all, but that are now tiny and found only in our ears. So given this evident progression of these traits, in addition to all those listed in previous episodes, do you accept that you are eucynodont? Lucky enough to live through the world's worst climate disaster and maybe smart enough to figure out how to stop the next one? <laughs>